You're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a new podcast from UCL. My name is Vivian Parry. I'm a writer and broadcaster and, yes, a UCL alumna myself, as indeed are all our team here. Each week, we'll be looking at coronavirus through a different lens, seeing it from the multiple perspectives of UCL researchers. And that's why we're calling this The Whole Story, because stopping a disease in its tracks is never about medical research alone. It's about history, psychology, social sciences, arts, engineering, economics, law, even politics too. UCL, or University College London, to give it its full title, is uniquely placed to give us that whole story. UCL is known the world over, not just for the extraordinary breadth, depth and range of its research and the quality of its researchers, but also for the way they work together to solve the world's challenges. We're going to start today on the front line in intensive care, and we're joined by intensivist professors Hugh Montgomery and Mervyn Singer to understand what happens to you in intensive care and how UCL is tackling the ventilator problem. And be assured, this interview is being recorded remotely. Let's begin by talking to you, Hugh Montgomery, about why COVID-19 is putting such a huge strain on intensive care units. Hugh is Professor of Intensive Care at UCL. He's a man with an extraordinary range, I think, both personal from ultra marathons and writing thrillers, but also scientific. And he's particularly interested in the so-called fitness gene and in how the body deals with extreme environments. That might be up Everest, but it definitely also includes critical care environments. I'm so grateful to you for coming on, well, to both of you coming today, because I, I know just how manic you are at the moment. But can you tell me, first of all, Hugh, why is it that COVID-19 makes people so sick that they need intensive care? Well, that's a very good question. Um, and it comes really in two parts. The first bit is really a question of numbers, because for the majority of people, it doesn't make them very sick. So we don't quite know the uh, instance of infection out there because it's likely that the majority of people and it could even be as high as 80 percent of people contract the virus and don't even know they've got it or get a slight runny nose and really don't get very sick but some do and the some do uh, become very poorly or can do and we don't know why we know that they're much more likely to be men we know that they're much more likely to be older so children can contract this virus, can become sick and can die. But that's very, very unusual indeed. But as age rises, particularly for the men, uh, it becomes more and more of a hazard to get very severely unwell. So we know that men are very much more likely to suffer from this disease severely. Uh, we know that advancing age is a risk factor. But we also know that there are other conditions too. So uh, pre-existing, even well-controlled high blood pressure, existing coronary disease, diabetes. Uh, these are all risk factors for severe disease. And we don't know why, but it could be that those diseases have damaged linings of blood vessels, for instance, that make them more susceptible to viral attack. But it could actually be that the genetics of those individuals is predisposing them, for instance, to high blood pressure, but also to viral infection. And infection and bad response to it is highly heritable. If uh, you or a grandparent had a heart attack and died of it, your risk of dying that way is elevated about twofold. But if you have a grandparent who died of uh, sepsis, in particular bacterial infection, 
your risk of dying of the same disease is elevated sevenfold. So that's a long-winded way of saying we don't quite know why some people suffer more than others. But the ones that do get acutely unwell firstly present to us usually with bad oxygen levels in the blood due to effects on the lung, but particularly we think in the blood vessels of the lung, and then can cascade on to getting severe failure of other organs. So we see a lot of inflamed muscles, we see a lot of inflamed, or at least measures of heart damage, and kidneys failing is very common as well. So once these people hit intensive care, they're often very, very poorly with multiple systems failing. So Hugh, at what point in a person's illness is the decision made that they need intensive care? And how do you decide who's admitted? Well, it's a difficult one. Um, Patients present sometimes very early in their disease, but most commonly people who are contracting the illness uh, are asymptomatic and not spreading for a couple of days, uh, then spreading the disease without knowing they've got it for about four more, and then become ill. And the majority of patients we're seeing attending hospital are falling acutely or seriously unwell sometime around eight to ten days into that illness. Uh, and then they're getting worse than presenting to hospital. The way we manage them, we, we're still not quite sure what the right way is. We give them supplemental oxygen. We sometimes get them to lie on their tummies, which for various reasons helps distribute blood in the lungs better and improves oxygen levels. Some of us, uh, Mervyn and I fall into this group, will then support patients with tighter fitting oxygen masks um, under a bit of pressure if the oxygen levels in the blood are particularly low. But if they remain very low, we'll often end up having to put people on a ventilator or a breathing machine. And it's fair to say that thresholds for doing that are very different in different parts of the world and indeed in different hospitals. There are hospitals in the United Kingdom that almost immediately put people on a breathing machine. And there are others such as myself, perhaps, and Mervyn, who would perhaps not do that. Uh, And it's a dark art. We don't really know yet what the best management is for these patients, but we judge it based on the oxygen levels, the work of breathing, and then I suppose the mark one eyeball of just how sick people look. Let me turn to Mervyn uh, now, because I, I want to find out a bit more about the machinery uh, that's used in ICU, because I, I guess we all imagine that, you know, it's everyone is on ventilators. And um, from what you've said so far, it's clear that that's not the case. Now, Mervyn is known for his work on sepsis, but also for the his work on the development of technology used in intensive care. Uh, for example, a machine he developed to monitor hemodynamics is, is now in use all over the world. And he's one of the clinicians who's been working with Mercedes Formula One to develop CPAP to help these COVID-19 patients. Uh, but before we go into the whole uh, CPAP project, what is CPAP, Merv? Yeah, so thanks, Vivian. Um, so CPAP is an acronym for Continuous Positive Airways Pressure. So essentially, you and I, when we're breathing, Uh, start off at atmospheric pressure, we then suck air into our lungs, causing a negative pressure to bring air into the lungs. And then we exhale and the air gets pushed out and we go back essentially to atmospheric pressure. With continuous positive airways pressure, there's a tight fitting oxygen mask and there's a valve at the end. So the oxygen's delivered under pressure 
and that valve that we breathe out against um, keeps the lungs splinted open. And so usually atmospheric pressure essentially is about zero centimetres of water. Here we're breathing out against a valve a resistance of 10 centimetres of water. So it's like blowing out through a straw um, inserted to a depth of 10 centimetres in a bottle of water, for example. And that helps not only open up the air sacs, the alveoli in the lungs, but as Hugh was mentioning, in this particular illness, COVID-19, the blood flow distribution in the lungs is very abnormal. And so it helps match the blood flow to the alveoli, the air sacs that are being ventilated. Now, is a CPAP machine the same as the thing that people who snore sometimes get? Yeah, very similar. Those are the sort of low-end machines where they're driven mainly off air, though you can bleed some oxygen into them. But those are the very low-end machines. And there are more sophisticated machines. So some people can be ventilated at home with machines that can offer CPAP and also additional support when they breathe in. So there are a range of commercially available machines. A lot of them are the low-end devices for sleep apnea, but there are some which are more sophisticated. And the intensive care machines we use for ventilating patients, as you described earlier, can also offer CPAP as a mode. But the big problem, and that's when COVID-19 came along, um, we looked in our trust and we had enough for our intensive care unit. These are the normal intensive care ventilators. We could augment those with a few other ventilators. We begged, borrowed, borrowed, scrounged. We could add in anaesthetic ventilators. So these are the ventilators used for patients having operations, but they're not best suited for keeping people asleep for a long time, for days or weeks, especially if you've got very bad lungs. And we only had 12 standalone CPAP devices in the whole trust. So there was an identified need for more of these machines. So is it true that all of this started with you sending a note to Tim Baker, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at UCL, that just said, we need more of these? Well, it was actually the other way around, uh, in that um, when Boris Johnson announced a call that we need more ventilators, um, my reaction, I think Hugh spontaneously was having similar thoughts, was, well, it's all very well having new ventilators, but by the time they engineer these quite complicated machines, even a simple ventilator, it's going to take weeks and weeks and weeks, and then they've got to go through regulatory approval. So by the time these devices come out, uh, the coronavirus pandemic or crisis may be largely over. And again, as you explained, I think probably patients benefit if you can try and keep them off a ventilator because once a COVID-19 patient ends up on a ventilator to survive, you're looking on average at at least 10 to 14 days. And there are other complications that can arise uh, from being on mechanical ventilation. So therefore, I think the view was that you needed a better way of trying a halfway house to try and keep people off a, a ventilator. And these were in short supply. And so I was approached by Tim Baker and Becky Shipley, who's a professor of healthcare engineering, because UCL Engineering were invited to be one of the hubs 
that uh, uh, were trying to coordinate these different companies, Airbus, Rolls-Royce, Dyson, etc., to be able to come up with new ventilators. And when they contacted me, and I think, again, Hugh had a a similar response, is, well, we don't really want ventilators, we want to keep people off ventilators, and perhaps CPAP could be the answer. And how did Formula One come into this? Well, Tim has had, in fact, he used to work for Mercedes Formula One. So this is a company based in Northampton who are bankrolled by Mercedes, but they make the powertrain, the engine for the Formula One machines, the Formula E machines and so forth. So he had a long-standing relationship and he then came to UCL as an academic and there still is a very close relationship. So many of the postgraduate students in UCL engineering do projects alongside Mercedes Formula One. And and so there was already this uh, long-established, very amicable, very productive relationship. And, and And so my idea was you want something simple, which didn't rely on lots of clever electronics that could be very quickly developed and mass produced. And there was something years ago uh, that had been abandoned because obviously machines became more sophisticated and obviously more expensive. But there were very simple, basic devices that had been around in the 1990s, the early 2000s that had essentially been abandoned, but did the job. And one of these was called the Whisper Flow, which I think first came into being in 1992. And this was a very simple device that plugged into the oxygen supply, which is um, standard by every bed. And you could, when you switched it on, entrain air. And so you could get an air oxygen mix and you could twiddle a button to get the uh, desired oxygen concentration. You could change the flow rate to get the flow rate that would suit the patient's breathing. And that was all there was to it. And we found one of these in the uh, anaesthetic department museum and basically handed it over to uh, Becky and Tim in engineering. And the following day, they handed it over to the Mercedes Formula One team. And literally within the following day, they CT scanned it, done metallography. So they knew the metallic component or constituents of each component. And a day later, they'd actually got a beautiful working model that myself and one of my clinical colleagues, Dr. David Brearley, we tried on ourselves and it worked. And so we were very impressed with uh, the speed and the quality of what they produced. And then... Uh, we did some bench testing and some human volunteer testing. And then that gave us, uh, within a few days, the technical dossier to go to the MHRA, the Medicines Healthcare Regulatory Agency that approved drugs and devices in the UK. And they were brilliant, extremely helpful. Within 36 hours, they'd approved it. And um, a day later, we trialled it on our first patients at UCH. So this Fantastic. Is... So how many have you now got in your department? Well, we've got in the hospital because our respiratory physicians have taken this on board and they're using it to try and save patients from coming to the intensive care unit. And so I think we've now got about 15 around the hospital. And Mercedes, um, so this is a month ago, um, came up with the thought and yesterday they produced their 10,000th machine. So this is quite amazing in 
literally four weeks to make 10,000 machines. You're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. And if there's a question about coronavirus that you'd like our researchers to answer, please email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk. Let me turn to you both now and ask you how COVID-19 is impacting the hospital, because it, it sounds as though it's brutal. Hugh. Yeah, so it's been, uh, it's had actually had some positives as well as some negatives. So the first thing is everything changed. As Mervyn pointed out earlier on, uh, six or eight weeks ago, there was a routine cancer surgery going on, orthopedic surgery, all the routine workings of a hospital. And now virtually nothing is happening in that hospital anywhere that isn't to do with coronavirus. The second thing is that we've had to change uh what people's roles are, and where we care for patients. So these tight-fitting CPAP systems that Mervyn's been describing, um, six weeks ago, if I'd had someone requiring one of those machines with a very high respiratory rate from a severe viral illness, requiring an awful lot of oxygen and monitoring, they would definitely have been in the intensive care unit with one-to-one or one-to-two nursing. And these are now nursed on open wards, being supervised by uh, general medical colleagues or respiratory colleagues and ordinary ward nurses. On the intensive care unit itself, and Mervyn can speak to his expansion, which has been very substantially greater than ours in North London, we've moved up from a smaller unit with 10 ventilated beds and five others to in the mid-20s of ventilated beds with perhaps another 30 of these patients with CPAP on a ward. And that's meant that instead of having one intensive care nurse to every patient, we've had to move to one intensive care nurse to every six patients with helpers looking after the others, which will be physiotherapists from the community or even dental technicians. So we've had to change the staffing and the way we work, and we've had to change the consultant ratios. So uh, we now work uh, with more than one of us on at once someone else outside doing the helicopter view of how to run the service and so forth. And we've had to change the machinery. We didn't have enough of the ventilators, the machines that blow air in and out. And we're having to use the anaesthetic machines, which would normally be used for healthy lungs for a short term operation and not really being designed for critically ill patients. And we've run out of drugs of various sorts. We've had to adapt to what we're using for sedation And we've had to deploy teams in ways they never would have been before. We often have to have patients on their tummies and on their backs. And actually, that move is very difficult uh, because there are lots of tubes connected to patients, which if they were dislodged, would be very harmful. So we, as I'm sure Mervyn will have too, have teams in our case of orthopedic surgeons who, instead of operating on hips and knees, are coming to help lift and turn our patients on a regular basis. So pretty much everything about the way we practice, the equipment, the deployment of where patients are, the roles of staff and the uh, access to facilities and uh, equipment that we use have all changed dramatically. And is UCL at peak now or have you still got capacity? 
Well, Mervyn's best place to answer that. Um, Mervyn, how are you now? You've, you've actually well, been sort of super surge hospital, haven't you? You've taken a lot yeah. of our patients for us. No, indeed. Well, we had the capacity to go up to about 70 beds. So uh, we normally have a, a 35 bedded intensive care unit. So essentially, we've doubled our capacity using operating theatre space and recovery room space. Um, and so we still have 61 patients across the site. We, we've managed to help hospitals that are a bit smaller taking um, I think we've taken about 54 transfers from hospitals mainly in the north central London area and obviously to try and relieve the burden on them uh, and it, as you said it has been incredibly hard and I'd add to that there's a huge physical and psychological strain these are often young fit healthy people who are getting incredibly sick and you have to nurse them and obviously the medical input as well but especially on the nurses it's a huge strain because they have to wear this horrible PPE this personal protective equipment where you get hot sweaty dehydrated and you have to wear this for four hours at a time and you can't even during that time scratch your nose rub your eyes because potentially that's a risk of transmitting infection so on top of the burden that he was describing accurately of a very reduced nurse patient ratio you now have all of the added burdens of looking after these patients in a very alien abnormal environment and who's looking after all of you and your nurses well th there's a lot of uh, multidisciplinary uh, collegiate collegiality collegiateness I'm not quite sure what the uh, the noun is um collegiality I think is that right um and you know there's um psychological support and there's a lot of team bonding you know people actually have been incredibly generous and I think you at the Whittington Hospital will attest too. There's been incredible generosity from people donating food, drink, clothes, you name it. Uh, people have been remarkably good. So it's a very nice way of keeping up morale. I, I've not had to buy any food at work for the last three weeks. And uh, there's all... Quite right too. <laughs> Thank you. Let me just turn now to Hugh and talk a little bit about what life is like for patients after they leave ICU? Because I think people have this idea that, you know, the minute you come out of ICU, that's it, you're better. But actually, there's a very long road to recovery for these folk, isn't there? I think there's going to be, and we've, Merv and I have spoken about this a lot and have, has have others, and we don't know yet, particularly for these patients, um, because we haven't had enough of them. But I think the signal is very clear. Um, Mervyn and I back in the day used to have patients like this with very severe lung inflammation from other causes uh, who we had to manage in very much this sort of pa pattern and way. So I guess our generation knows what the outcomes are. And the outcomes are savage. This is a uh, very, very, very debilitating environment. Um, one is paralysed, often with drugs to let us take over breathing. The muscles aren't moving. This is about like being in space where you don't lose muscle and it wastes away. But also the disease itself in this case is, is damaging muscle uh, quite significantly. The net result of this is that uh, patients are going to be dramatically weak. And we have many on our unit at the moment who we're waking up two weeks in to find that they can't 
even lift a hand or a foot off the bed. Um, they can't even lift limbs against gravity. And that's normal uh, from what we used to see before. Um, we know that from those previous studies, up to 80% of people of working age are significantly physically disabled and unable to work even a year after discharge. And we know that if you measure physical functional capacity in those sorts of patients with what we call ARDS or acute respiratory distress, even five years later, they haven't returned to normal levels of physical function. Now, on top of that, there are dramatic uh, psychological impacts. So it depends how you define these impacts, but uh, in their broadest sense, we could expect up to 82% of the patients who survive to have significant psychiatric or psychological morbidity, so anxiety, depression, PTSD. And that relates partly to the drugs we have to give people, to the fact that this virus as well seems to affect brains. We're seeing more and more of this um, causing delirium or confusion or worse. The fact there's no day or night, alarms are going off the entire time, uh, the light exposures are constant, uh, and many other factors seem to contribute to this. So you're absolutely right. This is not going to be a um, wake up, get out of bed and walk out to bunches of roses and a champagne party at home. This is going to be very tough. And Mervyn points out very rightly that whilst we're focused on those patients, as we should be, the impact on the staff that have to look after those patients and see this level of suffering is difficult. And we also have to remember this is very, very hard for family members. Uh, often they see their, their uh, family member go to hospital. The next thing they know, they're on an intensive care unit. They can't talk to that family member because they're on a ventilator. They can't visit them because of the workload we have at the moment. Um, and the next thing they might face is to be told that their loved one is now coming off a ventilator. And then they're going to be needed. There's going to be a lot of social support is going to be required here. And I think sometimes we forget that in time of war, um, there's a lot of spirit and support. And when the war is over, sometimes people forget that for other people, the war has only just started. And that will be, in this case, the family members and those survivors. Mervyn, can I, I must complete our podcast now, but Mervyn, I just wanted a final note from you, really, about how this period working in intensive care in this uh, extraordinary environment, you know, how it feels to be right in the middle of it. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a great question, Vivian. Um, when um, it obviously happened in China and then uh, the Lombardy region in around Milan particularly were, were affected. So I have lots of friends and colleagues in both in China and in Italy. And um, I remember one describe, well, more than one actually, uh, Italian describing it to me as a war zone. And I, I laughed and I actually joked that, you know, that this is um, Italian melodrama. And I actually now eat my words. It, it is actually, sadly, a, a war zone is a very, very accurate description. It, it's sort of desperately busy, desperately tiring, stressful. And, uh, you know, it's something I've not experienced in, in over 30 years of clinical practice. So this is something we've completely, you know, not seen before. And also it's a, a disease, the like of which we've not seen before. So as with other conditions where there's an evidence base and we know what to do, we've had to 
essentially be learning on the job. And we've had the advantage of picking up hints and tips from our Chinese colleagues, our Italian colleagues, but it, this is very much uh, a learning experience as we work. And there is no set guidance as to how best to treat these patients. And so it's very much uh, not quite trial and error, but try and do the best thing you can and, and learn what things seem to work and what don't. Well, we're extraordinarily grateful to you both for coming today and telling us about life on the front line. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Health Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL, with support from the UCL Health of the Public and edited by Keris Bradley. Our guests were Professor Hugh Montgomery and Mervyn Singer from the UCL Faculty of Medicine. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon.